Father, what You've done for us in our lives is nothing short of revolutionary. Lord, through the blood of Jesus Christ, You bring about a change in us that could not be brought about any other way. And You empower us, raise us up, when we are so unqualified to be raised up. And we acknowledge, Father, that the goodness in our lives is directly a direct result of what You are doing and what You've done. The ability to love and to do good, to experience joy, to offer kindness. Father, these things are here because of You. Because, Lord, You raise us up and out of ourselves. And I am so thankful for that, Lord. So thankful for the hope that You pour out on this world. Lord, on a daily basis, we are met with a barrage of evil and sin and darkness and hurt and loneliness and despair. But you have provided the way out. Much more than an escape, Father, you've provided the hope to live in this life right now. A future hope, Father, but also, as Peter called it, a living hope. That we might not despair about tomorrow. Or be dogged by yesterday. But Lord, we can live right now. Right in your presence. In the presence of the one who called himself I Am. And we are here this morning. Lord, to hear from you. And to be with you. And to ask for you to continue this this life-changing, life-altering process. To sanctify us, Lord. And purify us. So that we might live for you and represent you. And Father, ultimately make you proud. Lord, as we pray this morning, I pray for those who are walking outside of a relationship with you. Lord, between this service and the next, I know there are going to be people showing up if not already here, who haven't been walking with you at all. Some who know you, but who have been focused on their own lives and not aware of you. Others, Father, who don't know you at all. All they know is what the news media has shown them of Christianity, of of a history of a church filled with sinners. So, Father, I know there are possibly some that will be here today questioning and wondering about why anyone would claim Jesus. And I pray, Lord, you would call them to the truth and show them by your word your absolute love for them, your forgiveness, your ability to work in their lives and hearts as you work in all of ours, Father. Bless your name, Father. We praise you. We ask that you'll teach us by your Spirit today. In Jesus' name. Amen.
Now, someone will get the light in the back and pass out some Bibles, and I'm sounding like maybe too loud. Can you bring me down just a little bit? <clears throat> Sounds like I'm in a cave. I get louder as I go, so thanks, Jack. You're going to need a Bible this morning. I know I say that every week, but we're going to look at two passages today. And if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand so that we can get one to you. I want you to open up to Judges chapter 4, but I'd also like you then to go ahead and put your finger there in Judges 4, your thumb there, and flip over to Romans. The book of Romans chapter 5. Judges 4 and Romans 5. Excuse me. Judges 4, Romans 5. I guess I should begin by telling you that if you're uncomfortable dealing with sin, you're going to be uncomfortable in the book of Judges. As we go through this study and this reading, and it's interesting to me, we we drew parallel all the way through the book of Joshua as to a life lived in the Spirit, a Spirit-filled life. The life of someone who comes to the, the border of the promised land, having made that decision to follow the Lord, to be in Jesus, but then crosses over into the promised land, crossing the Jordan. You recall that the Red Sea, Paul called a baptism. The Red Sea is very similar in type to our baptism. When we give our lives to Jesus and, and we're baptized and we enter into that relationship. But then the children of Israel came to the second baptism. They came to the Jordan River and had to cross over and into then the promised land. The land where they could take hold of what God told them they were going to receive. It's like the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we went all through Joshua, and there are amazing parallels in that book about Joshua as a type of Jesus, and the people as a type of living the Spirit-filled life, and how we go about that. But then we get to the book of Judges, and suddenly, it's all about sin. Now, wouldn't you think that the progression would be different, that it would be Judges first, and then the Exodus, and then Joshua. In other words, dealing with sin first, then giving your life to the Lord and being released, and and then living the Spirit-filled life. But that's not the pattern. And if you've been a Christian at all, you know this to be true. Even if you're walking in the Spirit, spirit Spirit-filled, and you have gifts, and you're able to just be empowered in life, you know that sin continues to be an issue. And so in the wisdom of the Lord, we look at these books, and we now are in Judges, which is a book about sin. Chapter 17, verse 6, which I've told you is a theme verse of the entire book. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. I'm not sure if there's a better definition of sin. Living without a king and doing whatever is right in my eyes. Going my way. Living in my own rebellion to whatever God says. That's sin. Now, last week in the book of Judges, we read that great graphic story in Judges 3 about Israel's third judge, Ehud. And how he drove that two-edged sword into the gut of Eglon, the king of Moab. And how the sword went in and the refuse came out. And and how that's an amazing picture, a graphic picture of the Word of God going in and getting the sin out of us. But gang, as much as it's a picture of the wonder of how the sword works and cuts away the refuse and even washes away the junk and filth in our lives, it is also an absolutely graphic picture of sin itself 
And I went on and on about it. It really upset Marianne. Just going on about the refuse and the bowels and the junk pouring out of this guy Eglon. And I did it on purpose. I wanted you to be grossed out because that is sin. And sin is far too often in our lives something that's pretty or nice to look at or desirable. Sin is not desirable. It is an ugly, disgusting, grotesque thing no matter how the devil tries to disguise it. It's ugly and sick. It's corrupt. And it only causes decay. And I wonder, do you ever just get tired of the sin in your life? Do you ever just get sick of it? Find yourself sinning again, whatever the issue may be in your life, and it may be different for all of us, but we find ourselves walking down that road of sin one more time and just going, I am so tired of this. Why can't I get it together? Why can't I stop walking? I'm, I'm living for the Lord. I claim I've got Christian t-shirts at home, and I'm still sinning. I read my Bible every day. I go to worship, and I, and I pray... And I'm still dealing with this issue of sin. Why do I keep doing these stupid things? Well, Paul, he asked that question. The great missionary of the early church, the the, the guy that the Lord used to plant churches and pen so much of the New Testament, he said in Romans 7.24, Wretched man that I am! Who will set me free from this body of death? And in 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said, and this is in the King James Version, he says, This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. But then Paul says, of who I am, chief. <laughs> Big chief sin. I mean, that's Paul. He describes himself as the chief of sinners, the foremost of sinners, the worst of the worst among sinners. And I think, man, if Paul's the chiefest of sinners, where does that leave me? <laughs> I haven't written a single book. I, you know, well, I was going to say I haven't planted a church. Well, the Lord planted the bridge, but that's about it. Paul, dozens and dozens. I mean, this was a guy who was, who was just passionate for the Lord and still said he was the chief of all sinners. You may have found this to be true. That it seems like the more that I walk with the, the, the Lord, the more I get into His Word and His Word gets into me and His Spirit guides me, listen, the more I am aware of the sin in my life. As a kid, I was hoping it would be the opposite. I was hoping that I would walk with Jesus and, and get more strong and powerful and righteous until I just felt like a holy guy. But the more I know the Lord, the more I recognize my sin. The more, and it's obvious because as you're standing in the presence of holiness, any sin in you is just illuminated. It just becomes obvious. The closer you get to God, the more perfect His person in your presence, the more you're aware of your imperfections. It's not, gang, that He wants me to feel guilty, but it's just that the more I'm around the light of His glory, the more obvious my sin becomes. It's funny, I don't understand the female mind at all. Not even close. Cheryl said something the other day that absolutely shocked me. And it was immediately uh, supported by several other women that she was talking with. See, every now and then we have women's things in our, in our home. And, and I, I try and get out of the house because the estrogen level is just a little hard for me to take. But I was in my office on this particular day. And I heard them talking. And, and Cheryl made the comment about you know being in the mall or something and comparing herself to other women. And to me, I was, I was absolutely shocked. Because when I look at my wife, I think, I mean, sorry ladies, but none of you compare. 
And yet she makes that comparison. All the other, oh yeah, oh, I do that. All, oh yeah, I do that. And, and I don't know, ladies, if you do, I don't compare myself to other men. I'm just thankful that I'm walking, you know. But this, this comparison, when you're around someone maybe more beautiful, you kind of tend to look at yourself. Well, that's, that's the deal with the Lord. He is so beautiful and so perfect that when we're around Him, man, we see our flaws. I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing, but I want to give you some encouragement this morning. Romans chapter 5, and we're going to start there. In fact, we're going to go backwards this morning. A lot of times as we're in Old Testament passages, we start with the picture or the portrait. We read the story, and then we jump over to the New Testament, and we make application, we find the principle there. And I've said this again and again, that for every Old Testament picture, there's a New Testament principle. This was wondering about, wonderful about studying the whole Bible is, is you can see these things as they open up. We're going to start with the principle this morning and then go back and look at the story. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Dealing with this issue of sin, Paul is writing, the chiefest of sinners, and he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed or seen when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. By one man, Paul says, sinner, sin entered the world. And you know that man, it's Adam. And we've studied about Adam, that the whole Bible starts off with Adam, first man created, and Eve, first woman, and they're in the garden, and by their sin, death came into the world. But don't blame him. Don't blame Adam. It's easy to do, I know. But gang, if it was you or me in the garden, we would have opened the door to death too. Oh, maybe not the same way. Paul says, even if your sin and my sin is not like Adam's, even if our sin is different, we still sin. Maybe I'm not eating an apple of a tree that I'm told not to eat from, but I'm doing something else. Ultimately, every one of us, if we were the first man, the first woman in the garden, we would have opened the door to death, just like Adam did. And because of sin, gang, things die. Now, I want you to grasp this concept, because it's not just a physical one. And it's not just a spiritual one. Even emotional things die in our lives because of sin. Relationships collapse. Friendships are crushed. Hopes and dreams crumble. Potential fades. And even meaning and purpose fail in this life. All things die because of sin. Even motivation dies because of sin. But wait, Paul says Adam, though he sinned, is a type or picture of him who was to come. And he's talking about Jesus. So we see in Adam that he opened the door to death for all mankind. What does Jesus do? He opened the door to life for all mankind. That power of death's entrance is even greater in Jesus Christ. In the same way one man, the first Adam, impacted the whole world, bringing death by sin, so also one man, the last Adam, Jesus, impacts the whole world by ushering in life through his atoning death and amazing resurrection. And it's a wonderful contrast, Adam to Jesus. But go on, look down at verse 15 of Romans chapter 5. He says, But the free gift is not like the transgression. 
For if by the transgression of one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. Skip down to verse 18. He says, So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. I have that underlined, highlighted in my Bible. Justification of life. Justification of life. I like the word justified. It's just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. Clean slate. Absolutely perfect before the Father. And that's the thing that really amazes me about walking with the Lord. It's true, the more I spend time with Him, the more I'm aware of my sin. The more I can see my sin nature. But the more I'm around Jesus, the bigger His grace appears to me. Do you understand that? That I, I sin, and I see that with the Lord, but man, when I'm around Him, I'm not wallowing in guilt like you might expect. I'm wallowing in joy because His grace is just huge. And I see that in contrast to my sins. I'm more aware of my sin, but His grace is this wonderful... I'm crashed by this wave of His constant grace. It gets bigger and bigger. We're told in verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. That's why God gave the law, so sin would become illuminated. We would become aware of it. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And you know what that leads me to do? It leads me to move from Philadelphia to Agape. Because His grace, gang, is His love. And the more aware I am of how He has saved me and cleansed me and made me whole, even when I was a mess, the more aware I am of how much He really loves me. And that makes me want to love like that. I want other people to experience that from me. I want to get out of the brotherly love, superficial realm and into unconditional love like the love of the Father. Now go on. Chapter 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? It's a funny rhetorical question. Hey, if I see more grace when I see my sin, why not sin more and just see more grace? And Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now in Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about some things, shares some things that are confusing. They're almost difficult to believe. And in fact, Romans 6 is probably, to my mind, the most revolutionary passage of Scripture in the Bible. Watch this. Pay close attention. The question he asks, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? If I died to sin, if I gave my life to Jesus and I'm supposed to be covered by His blood and seen by God as sinless, why do I keep sinning? Well, Paul goes on in verse 3 and he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Let me make a comment about that word baptized. Be clear on this word. It's unfortunate that it's not translated correctly. Correctly, It's just kind of a transliteration. It's the Greek word baptizo and they just kind of changed it into an English word instead of just translating what it really means and it means immersed. It means immersion. All the question about how to baptize in churches today is a confusion based on a bad translation. Baptizo means to immerse. I've told you before there's another Greek word, rantizo, that means to sprinkle and it's not used here. In fact, every time that you see the word baptize in the scripture, the word is baptizo, immersion. 
Why are you telling me that, Rick? Because verse 3 says, don't you understand that if you have been immersed into Jesus Christ, you've been immersed with His death? This is a complete connection to Jesus. This is what our faith leads us to. Verse 4, he says, Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Now listen, because this concept is awesome. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ didn't just pay the penalty of sin. If you're taking notes, write this down. It didn't just pay the penalty of sin. It pinned down the power of sin. Let me say that again. The crucifixion of Jesus didn't just pay the penalty of our sin. It pinned down the power of sin over our lives. Look at verse 6 again. Our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Now that phrase, done away with, you need to understand. It's the Greek word katargeo. And katargeo literally means paralyzed. Or better, made powerless. Read it that way. In order that our body of sin might be paralyzed. In order that the sin in my life might be rendered powerless. That's what Paul is saying about sin. It's not just that sin is done away with before the eyes of the Father, so that when God looks at us, He sees us as perfect. It means that the power sin used to have over your life, that you had no say over, is gone when you're in Christ Jesus. Sin no longer has power over you, over me. That's huge. It means that if you've died with Christ, the old man or the old woman of sin is powerless, has no more control over you. Sin cannot control you. Before becoming a Christian, you had no choice. And if you're not a Christian today, I'm, I'm just, I guess, commiserating. There's no choice. You have to sin. You're going to sin. Sin has power and authority over your life. But in Christ Jesus, when I have been immersed into His death, I come out to a new life. There's a new power at work in me. And you might say, well, how can that be? I don't know any sinless Christians. Read on. Verse 7. He who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, Paul says, consider yourselves, some verses say, reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness. For sin, listen, for sin shall not be master over you, and you are not under law, but under grace. The chiefest of all sinners makes this statement. 
The foremost of sinners says sin is no longer your master. You don't have to do what sin calls you to do. And that's the power of the resurrection of Jesus. A power that saves us for eternity, but a power that makes sin powerless in our lives today. You don't have to sin. And we need to understand, you know, as Christians, we, we think, oh, man, I sinned again. Lord, forgive me. And we miss this point. I don't have to sin. I don't have to give in. I actually have a power now that I didn't have before. I don't have to give in to any sin. Well, how does that work out practically? Well, that's the New Testament principle. Let's go back now to the Old Testament or Older Testament picture, Judges chapter 4. Understanding this principle that sin is rendered powerless as it was nailed to the cross, let's now look at this this picture in the Old Testament and apply that principle as we read this story. Judges chapter 4 and verse 14. Judges 4 is the story of Deborah, the fourth judge of Israel. Deborah was a great leader. She, by the way, just wanted to be a mom. That's all Deborah wanted. We see that in the passage in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Deborah, verse 7 of chapter 5, arose a mother in Israel. That's her title for herself. I just, I'm a mom. But I'm also a judge and a prophetess and a warrior. <laughs> but I'm a mother first. I love that. But this mother judge, Deborah, is called by God to call her commanding officer, Barak, to go out and fight against the kings and in full battle array against Canaan. Now, here's what happens. Verse 14, it tells us, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera, the commander of the Canaanite army, Sisera into your hands. For behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Mount Tabor is in the Galilee region. It's in northern Israel. You can see it today. It's called the navel or the belly button of the world. And that's because it's kind of like an Audi. If you look at it, not the car Audi, but like an Audi belly button. It's just this rounded hump. And from a distance, you can say, yeah, I can see how that would kind of be a a navel type looking mountain. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away by foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Sisera doesn't mean sissy. It means battle array. Sisera is the commander of this Canaanite army. He is a great commander, a great leader, very much feared by the Israelites. He had been used by the king of the Canaanites to, to keep Israel down with his 900 iron chariots. This was a powerful man. His army was arrayed with iron weaponry, which we talked about this past week was, was important because Israel was not in the Iron Age yet. The, the best metal they had was bronze. And iron could take that apart. And so these iron chariots came down, and this iron weaponed army came down, and their technological advantage was great with Canaan. But verse 15 tells us the Lord routed Sisera. God overcame the battle array of Canaan. How did he do that? Look at chapter 5, verse 4. Deborah's singing and she says, Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked. The heavens also dripped. Even the clouds dripped water. 
You see, this battle occurred during the dry season in Israel, which is a very dry season, I might add. And there at Mount Tabor, in the valley of Megiddo in northern Israel, the region of the Galilee, the Lord brought down an epic downpour at the beginning of this battle. So here comes Sisera and the Canaanite army, and they've got their 900 iron chariots, and, and they're moving along at fast pace along this hardened, packed earth, and suddenly it begins to rain. And it rains, and it rains, and it rains. And those of you who went to Israel, you know how it can rain when it decides to rain in Israel. It was a flood, a downpour, and suddenly this hard-packed dirt becomes mud. And the army's iron chariots are rendered useless as they get stuck in the mud. They can't go anywhere. And the Lord literally routes them this downpour flooded the, nor- the, the river up there, the river Kishon. Verse 21 tells us in chapter 5, the torrent of Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. Oh my soul, march on with strength. And man, I'll tell you what, it's easy to be strong when your big brother is beating up your enemies. I mean, I know this feeling. I remember once when I was a kid and some bullies came around and I was out front in front of my house shooting baskets and some, some kids, three, four grades older than me, three or four of them came around and they were acting awfully tough and I was cowering kind of in the corner holding my little basketball there, you know, as, as they're coming up the driveway toward me and suddenly my dad, dad comes from around the corner. And I was so tough. I was immediately brave. You guys get off my property. I got him, Dad. You know, when Dad's there, it's easy to want to route the army to be able to route the army. That's what happens with Deborah and the, and the the people of Israel. They see all of a sudden this this river torrent, this downpour. The army's stuck and they're being washed away. It's like, yeah, fight, go get them. We got them now, and that's how this came about. Furthermore, by the way, the, the Canaanites thought that Baal would help them. They believed in the god Baal. But Baal didn't show up. He bailed. He wasn't there for them. He never shows up in the scriptures. But Israel had a great victory that day. Read on, going back to chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Now Sisera, this great Canaanite leader, he fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. Now Jael and her husband Heber, they had aligned themselves with Israel. They were Gentiles whose people were allied with Canaan, but they had separated themselves from their own people and they were now lined up standing with Israel. They wanted a new life among God's people. So they cut their ties with the Kenites and the Canaanites. That's like you and I. We want a new life. And so we're going to align ourselves with the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Yeshua, Hamashiach, who is Yeshua, Hamashiach, Jesus Christ. We're the Gentiles, but we align it. We're just like Jael and and Heber, okay? And, And grab that picture in your mind. And we have aligned ourselves with the true God. And we want to serve Him, but the old man shows up. The old man, the old sin comes back. What do you mean? Heber and Jael, they knew Sisera. They had some kind of dealings with him in the past. It's interesting. Maybe you can relate to this whole concept. You've determined to leave the old life, but then the old man of sin shows up again looking for you to take him in. Sisera flees back to this region where Jael is 
And it says, verse 18, that Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Jael invites him in. Sisera knows somehow to go to her tent. There's a relationship there from the past. And now the old man, the leader of the enemy, comes to Jael. And she sees him and says, All right, come on in. My master, she calls him, Lord, brings him into her tent, which is an interesting thing. In that day and culture, normally only a husband would be invited into a woman's tent. And so because of this, it would be a safe place to hide. They wouldn't look for him in the tent of Jael. Well, verse 19 going on says, he, he said to her, Please, give me just a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. The old man always says that. The old sin always comes back and says, Just give me a little something. A little something to drink. Just, just satiate me a little bit. Uh, just help my, I'm just a little thirsty. Can you give me something to help out, the old man says. And in our lives, we look at that old man of sin and go, you know, should I, should I not, what do I do? It's that temptation. Just a little bit. It's not, I'm not going to go back to the old way, but certainly I can offer the old man a drink, right? Sooner or later, the old man of sin always comes looking for a little thirst quencher. Verse 19 going on. So she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. Then she covered him. Smart girl. Smart girl. Let the dogs fight that out. She, instead of giving him water to satiate his thirst, she gives him warm milk to make him sleepy. You and I can do the same thing when the old man, the old woman of sin, comes a knocking at the door of your tent. Give them milk. What do you mean? Peter said, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Sin comes a knocking. Get the word open. Take a sip of the milk of the word that for you is nutrition, but for sin makes it sleepy. It makes it less effective. By the way, this bottle of milk, they used to keep these in their tents and it was more like a, a thick kind of curdled yogurty type drink. Real heavy and warm. And he comes looking for some nice fresh water after a, running from a battle. She gives him warm, thick, curdly milk. Well, he drinks it down and it does make him sleepy. And you give the word, when sin is asking for a drink, you give it the word. It's what Jesus did, isn't it? When he was tempted, in the early part of, of all the gospel shows the temptation of Christ. And what does he do? With every single temptation of Satan, he responds with the word. The pure milk of the word. You don't feed the sin. You present the word. So verse 20 going on, he said to her, Stand in the doorway of the tent, and it shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is there anyone here that you shall say no? Another cultural note. The women were in charge of the tents. They were the ones who set up the tent and tore it down when the people moved from one place to another. As it should be, I think. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But she knew, Jael knew, number one, where the nails were. And she knew how to swing a hammer. She knew how to get those nails into the ground to put the tent up in the first place. And now Sisera asked, you know, I'm going to come off as such a nail chauvinist. I'm really not, ladies. Ask my wife. Okay, I'm, well, maybe you shouldn't ask her, but I'm not. I'm not a, not a chauvinist of any kind. But she comes along 
And she knows where the nail is. She knows where the hammer is. And Sisera asks her to lie for him. Stand in the doorway and pretend like I'm not here. Hide me. Let's just keep my presence between you and me. Doesn't sin do that in our lives? Hide me. Just put me under this blanket over here. Don't let anybody know. They don't need to know I'm in here. You and I can just know this. And you lie for me. And you hide me. And you protect me. But what does Jael do? Jael grabs a nail. And it's another great story in the book of Judges that makes a great point. And I hope this one sticks with you. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted and so he died. And the old man never saw it coming. First she fed him the milk and he got sleepy and he never saw it coming. She nailed him to the ground and that's the key, gang. Think him back to Romans 5 and 6. This is the key. The tent peg nails the old man to the ground. The tent peg nails him. Now Isaiah chapter 22 verse 23 speaking prophetically about Jesus Christ The Lord says, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. Listen, Jesus Christ was pegged by the Romans as a criminal. The Jewish leaders pegged him as a blasphemer. But he was pegged by the Father as our Savior. He was pegged by the Lord as our Christ. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Later Peter said in Acts chapter 2 verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the pre determined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross the Romans thought they had pegged the usurper and the Jews thought they had pegged a blasphemer but the father knew he had pegged his son for your sake and for mine it was God's plan of salvation all along back to jail in Sisera she drove that peg right through what the Bible tells us through his temple and the word tells us That we are, our bodies are the temple of the Lord. Now listen, my dad used to say this. He used to say, why can't you get this through your thick skull? Jail had no problem getting the nail through the thick skull of Sisera. And you and I, we've got to grasp this concept. Because I think, unfortunately, the skulls of many of us Christians is awfully thick. It's hard to get this nail through. Paul says in Romans 6.11, he says, Likewise reckon you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, reckon, consider, think about this. Don't just gloss over it. You are supposed to be dead to sin. You are, by the power of Jesus Christ, dead to sin. Sin no longer has mastery. It no longer has power. Just as Jesus died to sin once for all, Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin. Get it in your head. Get it in your heart. Because Jesus was pegged to the cross, my sin has been rendered powerless and I don't have to give into it anymore. 
Like Jael and Heber in their household. They didn't have to fear Sisera, the old man, showing up anymore. It was done. It was over. And you might say, but Ricky, you don't understand. My sin is so tough to manage. And I say, stop playing the victim and listen. God's word declares. God's word declares that sin no longer has power over you. If you are in Jesus Christ this morning, listen, sin doesn't have the mastery that it once had. And it's a lie of the devil to Christians, to people in Christ, to make us believe that we just can't help it. That sin just somehow is too great for us. No. God's word declares otherwise. You don't have to do it. The only real power that sin has is the power that I give to it. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. I had never seen this verse before. I love it. We've talked about the word being like a a sword, a two-edged sword. The word being like milk. The word last week, like water that washes us clean. I've never seen this one. God says, is not my word like a hammer? (laughs) That's good stuff. Especially if you're a Bible banger, that's something you can use. (laughs) My word is like a hammer which shatters a rock, not just a, a thick skull, a rock. It gets in. And we've got to allow the word of God to hammer this point home. Listen carefully. I'm going to read you a couple verses out of Colossians. Hang on every word. Colossians 2.13 When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He made you alive. Together with Him, meaning Jesus, having forgiven us all our transgressions, past, present, future, having canceled out the certificate of death consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When He had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Him, through Jesus, because Jesus was nailed to the cross, driven like a peg into a firm place. The sin of this old man has been katargeod, paralyzed. The old man of my life is rendered powerless. He cannot raise up against me. I don't have to follow. Oh, the sin nature is there. And the sin nature will be there until we are called up to be with Jesus. But gang, sin itself no longer has power over you or over me. It is literally impotent. How's the sin in your life? Impotent. It can't do anything to me. Other than what I allow myself, Romans 6.14 again, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And the symbol Paul uses to explain and describe this in Romans chapter 6 is beautifully baptism. That burial. It's like going in the dirt. Six feet under. And we don't go quite six feet under when we baptize here. You don't have to worry about that. But it's a burial of the old man. Let me ask you, have you ever been buried in the waters of baptism by your own choice? By your own choice. I don't often do this, but I want to express something to all of you, to everybody at the bridge this service and next this morning that I often have conversations one-on-one and often say this very thing regarding baptism. A lot of people were baptized, sprinkled by their parents as babies. 
and they come across passages like this and they hear me tell the definition of the word baptism, immersion, and they say, well, well, wait a minute, but my parents have such great faith in the Lord and my parents dedicated me to the Lord and I was baptized as an infant and, and if I get baptized now, like, like you're saying get baptized, if I get immersed now, well, then I'm calling into question their faith. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're just calling up your faith. The question is, have you made that decision? Have you decided to accept what the Lord has done in your life? Have you made that faith decision for, for Him? And for yourself. And some people say, well, I, I gave my life to Jesus ten years ago. I've been walking as a Christian ever since. So if I get baptized now, you're saying that I wasn't a Christian? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying, have you ever made that decision? To follow through in that process, that picture of burying the old man of sin. Maybe that's why it's dogging you so much. And I don't believe, I don't believe that the water of baptism is what saves you. I don't believe that there's any action of man that can save you or save me. I know what the Bible says about that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself so no man can boast. So going into the water is not going to save your life. But it will connect you in a powerful way. In fact, it will connect you in a way I can't even explain. Paul says you, you end up buried like Christ and raised up walking in a newness of life like Christ and so my encouragement to you is if you have never done this why wait why not why not bury the old man once and for all or the old woman once and for all Judges chapter 4 and verse 22 says behold as Barak pursued Sisera Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. I love the way the story ends. Behold, let me show you the old man that you're pursuing. He's right there. Rendered powerless. He can't do another thing against Israel. Gang, when you are in Jesus Christ, the old man, the old woman of sin is pegged to the cross and has no power over you. And that's a good thought. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you will hammer this point home. Father, we declare today by the power of Jesus on the cross and by His blood that was shed, we declare the old man, the old woman, dead to sin. And we pray that you will raise us in that newness of life. Father, would you remind us as we walk day in and day out that we don't have to give in. That we don't have to be afraid of our own sin. But that we walk by grace. We live immersed in the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that your grace will be the great motivator of our lives to live for you. Not as arrogant, self-righteous, self-important, pious, religious people. But Father, as those who know the old man of sin has been done away with and the new man walks by grace. Father, save us this morning. Save us again, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.